Open up your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth. The scripture reading for our sermon today will be in the first chapter of Ruth. And there in chapter 1, I will just be reading the first 13 verses. These are the words of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters, her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may, be, may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. May God bless the preaching of his word. Well, good morning. It is uh, a delight to be here. It's an honor. I was here in the spring, and I'm so thankful to be back. So, the book of Ruth, the gospel according to Ruth, is where we find ourselves in this wonderful morning. It's good to go to church, right? It's good to be faithful uh, to worship of God on Sundays. It's something that even Christians sometimes can neglect and and find other things to do on a Sunday, but God wants us to come to church not to check a box, but to to be encouraged. God wants to encourage you and build up His people, and we need our minds to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is why we should be faithful to church. So, uh, welcome. Welcome to worship, and welcome to the feast that is God's Word. This is the story of Christ and his kinsman redeemer, 
relationship to us, the church. The preaching of the Word is a weighty and it's a serious task. Let's, let's pray then before we start. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus, amen. So, in this brief survey, this is what we're going to be doing, a brief survey of the gospel according to Ruth, I want you to remember the main thing, that we will share in Jesus' resurrection. The book goes from tragedy to comedy, disaster to romance, death to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be transformed and resurrected as the son of David was risen. We will share in his resurrection. Here is the gospel, according to Ruth, in under an hour, Lord willing. I believe it definitely will be. (laughs) So there's different types of preaching. There is uh, some of the best sermon series I've ever heard are sermons that will go through a book and it takes two years. Some of the best preaching I've been under has been that way. Um, I've also heard uh, amazing sermons that have burned into my memory that were topical. Um, There's different kinds of faithful preaching. Um, My endeavor this morning is to actually go into the, the gold mines of the Old Testament and to cover a whole book uh, from a certain altitude. There's an argument for it. Um, it's a little bit more rare, I feel like, uh, in churches for that to be done, but I do think there's a place for it. Um, so if you, if you would, bear with me as we sort of, from a certain angle, look at this whole book and maybe not cover every detail, but to get a a broad view of the place of this valuable book in the canon of the scriptures, which is uh, indeed a very rich one. So let me introduce you uh, to, to the book. Maybe this is the first time you've seen it, or maybe it's been a while. This story is written in part to underscore David's right to be king. That's its place, to underscore David's right to be the king of Israel. Really, it's the gospel in a short story, 80 verses. Uh, For you literary types, it's a novella, a short novel, which is a good way to frame it because the Bible is literature. It's literature. And sometimes we can forget that a little bit. Some of the same principles of approaching literature are needed for interpreting the Bible faithfully. The categories of literature. So studying categories of literature are actually really important for being a Bible student. Sometimes we get into a little trouble when we look at the Bible as just factual history, the way that sometimes historians will do history. And this is one of the things that will trip people up a little bit when they People that don't know a lot about the Bible will look at the Gospels and see some of the different accounts of the way that the apostles wrote the Gospels. And they'll be like, look, there's contradiction. There's a contradiction. There were, one Gospel writer says there was one angel at the tomb. The other Gospel writer says there were two angels at the, at the tomb after Christ rose from the dead. And they'll 
take those little cheap shots against Christianity because they're approaching the Bible from just a certain uh, angle of like a, an historian might, trying to gather all, every single fact of the situation. But the Bible is very different at times in the way it approaches us with um, frameworks and, and literary themes and these, these names of these, these men who died, for instance, unlikely that their loving mothers would have called them sickly. Because that's what mahlan means, is sickly. I doubt that she named her son sickly in the beginning. Or, or Killian, which is frail, pining away. <laughs> These are literary names. And this is strange to us because, I mean, this is Hebrew literature. This is ancient literature. This is Hebrew categories. And they would frame their story sometimes with a, the, the, a name for the character of which was his end, you know, in this storyline. And his real name was likely something different. This is strange to us, but this is common in Hebrew literature, right? So it's, it's a fascinating story to kind of think through uh, these types of things. So look with me, consider, pretend you are a literature student and we're studying the, the Gospel of Ruth. It's literature, but it's also God's Word. It's both. Because the Bible is the supreme book of literature in all the history of the world. There's nothing like it. So, this is fascinating. Because what you see here, in being a good Hebrew, and that's what we need to be. We need to be good Hebrews. Good Christians looking at this story looking at Israel's story, which is our story. It's both. It's our story. In this book, you have a symbolic repetition of Adam and Eve's first encounter in chapter 3, because that's when Ruth meets Boaz, which is fascinating. That's how we ought to be thinking. Symbolic repetition of Adam and Eve's first encounter with each other. There's real romance here. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful and real part of this story. But it's not the primary thing. The story really is about chesed, the Hebrew word for covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. The rich Hebrew word connotating that loyalty. This is just by way of some introductory things before we kind of zoom in a little bit more on the book. Why did Boaz... Boaz exalt Ruth so much. And this is where some of the real rich stuff comes in the book. It's because here with Ruth is an immigrant. Okay? A, not just any immigrant, but a Moabite woman of all people. This is a despised people to Israel. This is an ancient enemy. Moab is an ancient enemy of Israel. And here of all people, here is this Moabite woman that demonstrates consistent virtue. The language, guess what, is Proverbs 31 woman language. She is a woman of virtue, of moral excellence. This is Proverbs 31 language. This is so cool. Of all people, what? A Moabite woman would be, can, would be framed this way. How? It's because her tenacity in keeping loyal to relational 
obligations to Naomi. That's why. Uh, author. Hard to say for sure. Solomon, perhaps, perhaps, might have been Samuel. Some versions of the Hebrew canon, it's grouped with Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, uh, the book of Ruth. In the Hebrew canon, the books are arranged in different groupings than we have in our English table of contents. So it's, it's amongst there in the wisdom literature, which is something to note. And let me just offer these four things. This is probably a good place to do this, but you might want to write it down if you're a note-taking person. It's up to you, but maybe you have an amazing memory or maybe you just want to try it on for size, see if it's something worth writing down or not. I understand. Four things. Um, This is what I've learned over the years. Um, There's many more to be added to it. But in terms of interpreting the Old Testament, okay, we're delighting in the Old Testament this morning. These four things are really critical for getting the Old Testament right and being able to get it to Christ um, in an accurate way and then to get it to us because we have to take it to Christ and then we can bring it down to our lives. That order is important. Um, Often there's a, I think his name was Graham Goldsworthy. He's a a, a fellow who's done, a theologian, he's done a lot of work on interpreting the Old Testament well. And he's talking about a lot of times we can end up putting Jesus, we know that Jesus needs to be in there somewhere, right? Um, Because Jesus said, all the scriptures are about me, you know, he tells the the disciples. But we can sometimes, if we're not, we don't do our homework well enough, we can sort of throw Jesus on like a caboose at the end of a train, you know, like just hitch him on there, you know, because he's got to be there. (laughs) But we don't really know how, like, it truly is supposed to fit in. And I hope that becomes a little more plain um, and readily apparent as we go through this. But nevertheless, here are the four principles that I think are very important with interpreting particularly the Old Testament. One, how does this smaller section that you're in, wherever you are, how does it fit into Israel's broader story? That's so important, for real, okay? So to to properly apply the Bible, you have to go to Corinth first. You have to go to Ephesus, so to speak. You have to go there. You got to go to Colossae. You got to go there, Smyrna, etc. Um, so, how does this smaller section, Ruth, fit into Israel's broader story? Okay. Two, who is a type of whom? So the Bible is is it loves symbolism drips from the Bible, just drips. We may not like symbolism a whole lot, but it's there. <laughs> it just drips. Okay. So. Types. There's always types in the Bible. And who is a type of whom? That's a, that's a number two important thing. Three, do I recognize Jesus wherever I am? Okay? Not just do I have warm fuzzies, okay? But do I really, do I really recognize the Redeemer here and, and a type for Jesus in whatever passage I'm in? That's three. And then four and last for this, How has he, speaking of Jesus, how has Jesus fulfilled himself in his life, death, burial, resurrection? Um, How has he fulfilled that passage or truth or section or story for me? So those four, those four. How has he fulfilled this passage for me? Now, 
Uh, here's a quote I ran across that I appreciated from one commentator, and then I'm going to share something of a brief outline of the book with you. Uh, one commentator says this, the book of Ruth moves from emptiness, we just heard that from chapter one, right? From emptiness to fullness. Emptiness to fullness. I mean, that's the Bible's progression. That's the story of your life, okay? Emptiness to, to fullness, from death to resurrection life, from bitterness to joy. Bitterness to joy. From exile to restoration. We could, go, we could just keep going, right? It really has that imprint. We could even say it is a story from Marah, that's what Naomi called herself in her bitterness. She says, call me Marah, bitter, to her actual Hebrew name. No, Ami, pleasantness. Bitterness to pleasantness. Bitterness to rest. That's, that's her name, which is rich. Now, briefly here, uh, it would be better if, I, if you had this reproduced on your end, and I kind of wish I would have sent this out to you all beforehand, because it might be a little tricky to follow me, but you might have, and I'm just going to go really quickly through this, but you might be familiar with a, a chiasm. I don't know if, if people have ever described a chiasm. The, the Hebrews, like in, when we go to English class in college and high school and stuff, the teachers taught us to outline, you know, the, the, the big points, A, B, C, D, E, and then the subpoints you indent in and you go down with maybe numbers. And then if you want to make subpoints on the subpoints, you, you understand, right? You follow the, the, the reasoning there. We, we're familiar with like outlining in the English world. For the Hebrews, though, the Hebrew people, you had a chiasm, which is sort of like a triangle, like this. And you have points that repeat themselves, um, the big points. And then as you move through the passage, uh, often there's different kinds of chiasms. But often as you move in the middle of the narrative, the section of Scripture, you get to the main point somewhere in there. And that's like the meat in the sandwich. That's the main point is in the middle. And that's basically the Bible drips with chiasms. They're all over. And sometimes we can miss them in English. But in Hebrew, the, the word repetitions will match and parallel with each other, and it's amazing. It's a real gift to be able to study the original languages because you start seeing things pop out um, that are harder to recognize in, in English. But here's a basic chiasm. A, first point, tragedy and death, chapter 1. But the end of the book which is called A prime, so you put another A underneath the A and put a little apostrophe. It's called an A prime. You're like, this, this is way, this sounds like school. <laughs> it's like, I don't, you got to stop, stop this because this is, I feel like I'm in college class. Just hang with me. Tragedy and death are the first and then A prime underneath it is joy and birth. You see, it's, it's that movement from death to life, joy and birth. And then there's just, in this case, two um, subpoints in the very middle that are parallel with each other, and it's B. Tragedy and death, A, but now there is love. There is, there is still covenant loyalty in Ruth, the Moabite, right? So get the irony there. 
and then just right underneath that as B prime, you have Boaz, which is the kinsman redeemer for this family. And he is a pillar of strength and stability that, through the power of God's grace, allows there to be that joy and allows there to be that redeemed woman. And she's a picture of the church. She's a picture of the church. She's a stand-in for the unclean, sinful person that's redeemed. She's a picture of the church. And so that's basically, that's one way. There's different ways to do it, but that's one way to do a basic chiastic outline. So the book is really about this, my friends. It is about God's providence. God's providence, which colors all and shapes all of our lives as a Christian. His his promises through his providence, and they always lead to joy and resurrection. And so this book is meant to give great hope to Israel. This is written during the time of the Judges, <laughs> a total train wreck. The book of Judges is a nightmare. It's a, there are great moments of victory, but there's also some of the worst capital R-rated heavy stuff, right, in the book of Judges. It's there. It's disturbing. And even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a parallel um, with the end of Judges and um, the Levites' concubine and that whole thing uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah, with Genesis. It's a parallel. But with Israel, it's even worse there. So there's just so much irony um, during the book of Judges especially. It's uh, tons of typology and symbolism in the book of, of Judges in particular. So this is written during the time of the Judges in which there was great instability, and everyone did was right in the sight of their own eyes, these things. Now, I want to transition and talk about um, some of the names in the book and, and their meanings just a bit, and their character, their characters, explain some of the characters, and then we're just going to do an overview of each chapter, and that will be a bit briefer as we move, move through here. So, names are very important in the Bible. Names. Naomi, Malan, Kilian, Ruth, Boaz, and Bethlehem. Bethlehem, house of bread. Those are especially important in this book. So let's talk about Ruth for a minute. Her character, her role, is to be understood in this book. And people likely would have immediately thought of one particular woman when they went through this book. And I wonder if you might be thinking of this same woman. But for the Hebrews who knew their Israelite history, they would pick it up immediately. It might be a little bit slower for us. But Genesis 38, Tamar, that's that's who we should be thinking of. The tribe of Judah is shamed because of Judah's sin with Tamar. The tribe of Judah is redeemed because of the fulfillment this time in Ruth with the same Leverite law. So your, your brother's wife, um, your, your, let's say you have a brother, your brother passes away, you remember the Leverite law, right? You are obligated to take care of her, bring her into your household. This is hard for us to understand today, but... It's an issue of covenant faithfulness. It's an issue of loyalty, of sacrifice, doing the right thing. And you take care of this woman and her children. And here's the kicker. Those children 
that you, you, you are not to take their inheritance, you see? That's where the sacrifice is involved, is you not only take upon the extra burden and the extra challenges financially and all the rest of that family and the children, however many there were, but you raise those, those sons and daughters um, to carry on your brother's name, that it may not die in Israel, in essence, okay? You carry on his name. You provide for them, and their money goes with them, and you invest in that for them. So there's a lot. There's actually sacrifice involved in this and care, and that's important to kind of get this book correct, the Leverite Law, which was totally messed up in Judah's case uh, in the book of Genesis, and you'll have if you're not familiar with that story, you should, uh, I don't want to take too much time to unpack that, but you should check that out, Genesis 38. Here's the deal. Ruth is one of only five amazing women in Matthew's genealogy of Christ. Tamar, Rahab, Rahab, you remember Rahab, right? Canaanite woman <laughs> who was like exalted for her great faith in protecting the Israelite spies. Ruth, another foreigner, a Moabite this time, and Bathsheba, right? She's not even named in the, in the genealogy. It just says, by her who was the wife of Uriah, right? Beth Shiva, I love her name in Hebrew. You can tell I love Hebrew. I really, I really do love Hebrew. Bathsheba, these are all like not the kind of ex- expectations. Because listen, for the Jews, like your gene- genealogy is like your resume, you don't mess around with your resume. You don't put stuff in your resume that's going to be like, ah, I, don't know about, <laughs> I don't know about that. You know, why did you put that down? Like, you don't mess around with your, your genealogy if you're a Jew. We don't really, to us as Americans, we're like, eh, you know, every, every generation kind of pulls itself out, but it's bootstraps kind of American thing. But our resume per individual we take very seriously. It's a little different for the Jews. It was their genealogy. So for Matthew to put these... Um, in here was a big deal, and they did it on purpose. And so, there's Ruth. Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, but he wasn't the first in line to be the kinsman redeemer in this situation. If you know the book, you'll remember that. There was another man who was in line to be obligated to take care of Ruth. And Naomi, by the way, you take Ruth, you take Naomi. You don't just take her. You see, you take, the, you take the family, whoever belongs to her. And so Boaz is second in line, but he ends up um, being able to take care of her. So the kinsman redeemer. The redeemer in general was to set the world to rights. He is, the, he is to be the, he's, he's supposed to be the knight in shining armor, right? He's, he's the guy. If you were about to be sold into slavery... The Redeemer would redeem you. If there was possible accidental manslaughter in the family or not, you might remember some of the cities of refuge stuff, the Redeemer was to get justice. So he was supposed to take care of stuff. Another thing that's actually pretty cool about Boaz is that one of the two, there were two primary pillars in Solomon's epic temple in the Old Testament. And one of the pillars was named after this man. It's called Boaz, which is really cool. Boaz, one of, the, one of the two primary pillars in Solomon's temple. And his name means strength, Boaz. But he wasn't 
a warrior. See, catch that? He wasn't an MMA fighter. He wasn't a lion slayer, okay? That's, that's awesome. That's not Boaz, but he's a man of strength. How? It's because he was a good man. He was a redeemer. That's why. And so they honored this man. And note, they note the irony. They honor the man who showed mercy to a foreigner. Okay? They honored the man who showed grace and exalted a Moabite. You see? It was crystal clear in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, how Israel was to treat the nations. Crystal clear. And it comes through in scenes and significance like this. Now, I want you to note something very fascinating, and I missed this uh, until I, I, was, I stumbled across it. Rahab had a son. Do you know what his name was? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Rahab, the, the prostitute, <laughs> that woman, the Canaanite woman that would help the Israelite spies, she's Boaz's mom. That's awesome. Boaz's mom. So he got it. Like, he understood mercy. He understood how this works, right? Which set him up to view Ruth through God's lens. So this woman, Rahab, a Canaanite, turned to Israel's God. So when Boaz saw Ruth, he saw, or he he saw his mother. See? Rahab the Christian, and he loved her. Chapter 1, let's give a summary on that. Well, there's tragedy and death to a very high degree. This is a kind of a female Job. Female Job, in a sense. Not as bad as Job's situation, but it's bad. Perhaps they were under God's curse, hard to to be definitive about. They abandoned the place where God placed his name, the promised land. At other times, faithful saints did go out from the land because there was famine and they weren't necessarily under God's discipline for doing so. But there's some reason to believe that this might have been a bad move on the part of Elimelech to, to leave the promised land, the place where God set his name, and to go amongst, of all people, to go to enemy of enemies, Moab. It might not have been a good move, but we can't say dogmatically. Yet in the midst of this problematic situation in Moab, Ruth, of course, shows Israelite faith, even though she wasn't an Israelite, to her mother-in-law. Ruth is loyal to Naomi, and Naomi's God. Guess what? Even more than Naomi herself, which is amazing. There's a setup of different atoms going on in this book. What do I mean? I mean that the first atom, we should think through a biblical typology of thinking of Elimelech as like the first Adam, a man who was under God's curse, who died. Um, personally, we don't know how much of a faithful man he was, but 
representatively, he's like the first Adam and his two sons perish. And they go on this self-imposed exile and they leave their brides stranded. And that's the situation. But the second Adam, right, is how we should be thinking. Boaz is a type of Christ, right? Second Adam. Uh, Romans 5, we're all fallen in Adam, but in the new Adam, um, we receive his righteousness. So Boaz is like the second Adam as the kinsman redeemer. Let me say just a couple more things about Moab because I think it's helpful in understanding this book. Moab, the Moabites were a cursed people on the whole and a cursed land. Do you remember their origin? They were related by blood to Israel. Sort of. <laughs> Bad blood. Black sheep. He, Moab himself, was born by the incestuous union between Lot, you remember Lot in Genesis, and one of his daughters. And on that note, the people of Moab to come later would be dominated by sexual sin. They worshipped the demon Chemosh, and in Numbers 25, Moabite women led astray some of Israel in apostasy and harlotry. Additionally, when Israel was moving towards the promised land, Moab refused to give bread and water or any help to Israel. Instead, they hired the services of, you remember the story, of Balaam to pronounce curses on them. In an ironically funny way, you remember the story, he could only pronounce blessings. (laughs) But there was a very sinister hook that the Moabites figured out how, ooh, we may not take them on in direct battle, but let's, let's go after the men. And let's use our women. And this has been an ancient tactic that the devil has used, and it is incredibly effective for uh, neutralizing the strength of men and for corrupting um, the church. And it's happening in spades in our country right now. The devil, uh, his tactics are the same, and they're very effective. And this is a very dangerous thing for Israel, and it's a very dangerous thing for the church today. Now, look at chapter 1. There's some problems here. Look at Ruth 1.15. Ruth clung to her. She says, go away. Go, to the, go back to the Moabites. Um, Orpah listened to her mother-in-law. Verse 15. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. This is not a good move on Naomi's part. The Bible doesn't say... In doing this, Naomi sinned. Sometimes the Bible does that, right? It does. Sometimes it doesn't. But just because it doesn't, doesn't mean that we're not supposed to do the hard work of actually recognizing what the the scriptures are communicating to us. We have to think through it. This is is not right. This is bad. She's, She's in bitterness, right? Mara. She's given up. She's lost faith. And she's, I mean, she's in pain, right? We could understand if we, I think, were, had gone through what she experienced. Return after your sister-in-law. <clears throat> but Ruth, Ruth didn't listen to her, thankfully. There's a time where you should not listen. Even to loved ones, there's a time where you should not listen. There's plenty of times where you should. <laughs> but there's times. Who is... Who is your boss, right? Who is your real master? 
And we ha always have to hear his voice, even if our loved ones are speaking a different voice. And we know this, right? We see this in Christ's life as well with Peter. Get, get behind me. Get behind me. And he calls Peter Satan, which is intense. But we know these things. We have to listen for God's voice. This is what Ruth is doing. Only in the land of promise and Israel's God, the true God, can one find this repeated word in the novella, rest, 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 okay? Look at verse 9, chapter 1, that you might find rest, okay? Rest is an important theme that's repeated. Some versions say security in chapter 3, verse 1, but literally it's rest. Shall I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Uh, the last verse of chapter 3, verse 18, rest, rest. Where is our true rest? See, that's the book uh, revolves around that important theme. That's what Rahab did. Only with the Hebrews... Where the, will there be salvation? Will there be rest? Right, And she chooses that as well. So this is a, a, a theme. Now, about land, okay? Old Testament is so much about land, right? Land. Uh, Moabite land, Israelite land, promised land. Uh, I want to address this briefly. H how should we think about the land promises today? And I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but I'm going to throw it out. You think about it. You chew on it. What about Jerusalem today? What about Israel, that plot of land over there in Palestine, Israel today? These are things we should chew on. With the ending of the Old Covenant and the judgment brought upon apostate Israel in the events of the late 60s AD, culminating in the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in 70 AD by Titus and Vespasian, God was doing an incredible history-altering thing. The whole world now, in a totally new way, was the inheritance of Christ and His church. Think about it. No Jewish temple has ever been erected since 70 AD. That's an amazing thing. That's really important. It's done. Done. Definitively. Animal sacrifices totally ceased. The faithful would be scattered by God's design to the four corners of the globe. And Jesus will not stop taking dominion until all his enemies are subdued beneath his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 and many other passages. Until what? Until the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so today, in the new covenant, the land of promise is Christ and his church filling the whole world, winning the tribes of all the nations. Revelation is unmistakably clear about that. And eventually, we have the promise. The meek will inherit the earth. It's all about the earth. It's all about the world. It's all about the nations. It's no longer about Israel, Palestine, that little plot of land. That's old covenant. Now, Naomi said she was empty-handed, at the end of this chapter one. She came down with a husband and two sons, all of whom died. But was she empty-handed? Was she empty-handed? No, 
she did have Ruth. And at this point, Naomi does not recognize the blessing she has in her daughter-in-law, in, in Ruth, but she will. I want to make an applicatory point about this. This is a good place to do this. This is often true in our lives, isn't it? We can get so frustrated with our circumstances and are tempted not to trust and wait on God for the, for the good that He's actually intending to bless us with. At the end of this little story, the women around Naomi will say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. See? Sometimes in life, God takes away a good thing from you. We're like, that was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing, God. It was a good thing. You took away a good thing. It's very painful. But remember, saint, he is working in you and around you all the time, always, always, to accomplish what? A greater glory, a greater good, a greater glory. Believer, you trust him. You trust him. Chapter 2, and more briefly, generosity to the immigrant. That's what chapter 2 is all about here. Boaz was simply keeping covenant faithfulness and obedience to the, to the law. He knew the Torah. So he was obeying this little command here in the Torah, Leviticus 23, 22, calls for mercy towards the immigrant. And here's the amazing thing about this Moabite woman, Ruth. She had the faith of Abraham, of all people. And the scripture does it all the time, right? Showcasing Gentiles at critical periods of Israel's history to rebuke Israel and to showcase, look here, look over here at this Gentile. Do you see? She had the faith of Abraham going out from her people, right? Going out from her land and, and seeking a heavenly city, right? Which has true foundations. It's all, it's just... All this stuff speaks to us from the text, from this Israelite history. Again and again, and this is what's encouraging people of God, the Bible underscores that it's not ultimately about what family you're part of. You be free from that. Your pedigree, your genealogy. Not about what station you have in life, what wealth, intelligence even, talents and greatness you possess It's whether you have total trust and faith like Abraham. That's what it's about. That's freeing because that's available to all. That's available to all. Do you have this trust and faith like Rahab? Like Ruth? What did Jesus say about the Gestapo Nazi officer? I mean, (laughs) the centurion? Like all the centurions, yeah, they were such a kind-hearted people. (laughs) You need to think, you need to think uh, German-occupied Netherlands, 
when you read about the centurions. You need to think about Corey Ten Boom, the hiding place. Brutal um, Nazi um, Gestapo officers. That's what you need to think of when you read centurions uh, in the Bible. What does Jesus do with him? He points him out and praises him in front of all the Jews as a man who had such great faith. That's amazing stuff. Chapter 3. There's just four chapters in in, uh, Ruth. I already spoke to you and said in chapter 3, verse 11, the language, woman of noble character. It might be a little different in your translation. This is a, a pointing back to Proverbs 31 woman. You don't have to come from a certain family. I just said it. An elite or mature family to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Praise God. Ruth is one. Genesis 3.15. Seed of the woman will conquer the seed of the serpent. 1 Timothy 2.15. Women and the whole human race will be saved through the faith and travails of women in childbirth and childbearing. Bringing about the promise bringing about the seed of the woman, bringing about the city of God that will overcome the city of man. Because her promised seed, Ruth, would be carried out ultimately to Christ. So, this is how the Bible works. The Bible loves the underdogs. We all love the underdogs. Through the unlikely, Tamar, the secondborns, the barren, Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, women, Gentiles. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame what? The rich, the powerful, the wise. This is the foolishness of the cross, the simplicity of the gospel. I'll add baptism to that too. Simplicity of baptism. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. I think of Ezekiel 47. This is one of my favorite passages, definitely in Ezekiel, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, that the sprinkle from the the temple, the trickle, the simple dip of our baptisms will turn into a river and then a flood of salvation for the world. Note that the passage, Ezekiel 47 and read it in light of the symbolism of baptism in the first century, spreading and going all over the place like the Great Commission all over the world, that it will flood the world. This is how the prophets speak. Last chapter, chapter 4. Let's turn there and let's, um, let's read through it a little bit. Verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, you see the one that was really first in place as the kinsman, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, 
On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Surely, as I said before, Boaz took Naomi in as well. She was in great need of care. It's very likely. It meant more financial and sacrificial burden, as I mentioned before as well. The children through Ruth would be for Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, his name, his inheritance, not the kinsman redeemer. The other man in line for the Leverite law here was unwilling to do it once he figured out that he would have to raise up and support a child that would take a portion of his inheritance. It wouldn't be for his own prior children, that is. And was it that he couldn't or wouldn't? Now, this is one other thing that's actually very interesting from the Old Testament. In chapter 4, as we look at a couple things from chapter 4 and then bring this in for a landing. It takes 10 generations of cleansing uh, before you can have an Israelite um, leader in the temple or in the, in the kingly service in the civic realm. This is fascinating. And that's exactly what we have here. Because there was still a problem with Moab, still a problem with the Canaanites. Israelite was not faithful to completely deal with them. So, whereas God raised up extraordinary faith from unlikely places, that doesn't mean the whole nation was, the whole nation's okay. No, it wasn't. And so, you still have the law in Deuteronomy 23.2. There has to be 10 generations of cleansing for there to be a person that is um, qualified to be a priest or to be a king in Israel. But here you go. This is exactly what we have. Look at uh, the end of chapter 4. You have Perez, which came from an insane situation with Judah and Tamar. Number two, Hezron. Number three, Ram. Four, Aminadab. Five, Nashon. Six, Salmon. Seven, Boaz. Eight, Oved. Nine, Jesse, the father of David. Ten. Tenth generation. Totally legitimate. Totally by the law fulfilled the law, fulfilled the requirement, he is fit to be king. So there you have it. What's the last word of the book of Ruth? What you got? Thank you. Not, maybe you're not used to talking back at the preacher. <laughs> it's David. Okay, that's not an accident. There's no, there's no accidents in the Bible. Every little detail falls into place in a very sophisticated design. No accidents. David. And so for us, it screams to us in the opening of the New Testament, right? Here is the son of David, right? Here is the messianic king, right? It's Jesus. For them in Israelite history, it's David. It's the literal man, David. And that is the great fulfillment of the promises. But why is David so significant? I mean... David, he really messed up. I mean, why is he showcased so much? Well, 
God, <laughs> Jesus is the friend of sinners. I mean, there's that. Um, but it goes beyond that. David was a man after God's own heart. He, he stumbled bad, 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 bad. But Jesus is very merciful. He's the friend of sinners. You see it in the genealogy all over the place. But really, David is a big deal because upon his name and his line, God said, I will keep my covenant. That's why David is very significant. Because one to come through David would be the Messiah, would be the Messiah of the world, the one that will set all the world to rights. So it's the faithfulness that God gave to David why David is so important. He was the ideal king. All the hopes of Israel were bound up in that name. And so the book ends there. Well, as I said, there is literary symmetry between chapter 1 and chapter 4. And what is that symmetry? It's not an academic thing, saints. It's very rich. It's the story of our lives. It's the story of conversion. It's the story of the world in the book of Ruth. It's the gospel according to Ruth. Death to life. We all move from dark to light. Redemptive history and the story arc of this novel move from pain to glory, promise to fulfillment, evening to morning, as it were. Winter to spring. The Bible said joy comes in the morning. Jesus rose from the dead. Who does he meet? He meets the church, a woman, as a symbol of the church. That's the crucifixion, the utter agony, the torture, like the world has ended. And it did. It did. The old covenant world ended. And the dawn of the new covenant, the dawn of the church age, the dawn of the resurrection life, Jesus meets a woman in a garden, Adam and Eve. The story of the world that is still happening that will end gloriously as joy in the morning, a man and his bride. And so, shadow to fulfillment. That's how the Old Testament works. This is the story of our lives. We know that God is the perfect weaver of stories. And though, people of God, our bodies grow weaker and fail, yes, our souls are being remade. We have that promise. We will be transformed and resurrected as the son of David was risen. We will share in his resurrection. All history will end in a glorious party, a wedding. Though you may be in darkness today, the sun is coming. You will be okay. Beauty for ashes. And I want to encourage you finally, friends, in Christ, we will all get home. We will all get home. If you abide in the Father and in Jesus' faithfulness for you, wherever God takes us, whatever happens, 
Wherever we go, we will all get home and we will all know each other. I will remember you. You will remember me. All that is good and true and right here will carry over to the other side. Amen. <laughs> it's amazing stuff. This is glorious. This is the gospel. A wedding celebration of all of history. And we will all be together forever. The book of Ruth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is God's word to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful for the infinite gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.